Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 108 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. On today's episode, United States Air Force veteran Raul Juarez joins me to talk about how he used education and community service in his post-military life to find the purpose and meaning that he had when he was in the service. It's, it sounds strange, but I actually, you know, when I, for after my first deployment, I enjoyed it. I feel like I, what I was doing, I was applying it and I was like actually making a difference. You know, not that you can't make a difference from, you know, home station, but it felt like it was exciting. It was scary. It was, it was everything all, all wrapped up into one. Um, and maybe like, you know, you can't replicate playing on Sundays or whatever sport you do. <laughs> you can't play, you know, from the watching or just commentating. You just can't, right? That's what they say. It's not the same. It's great, but it's just not the same. And same thing here. Like now we're talking about all swapping stories. And, and so there's a lot of that. I think a lot of similarities, to be honest. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. You know that uh, we have a wide range of guests on the show, and today's show uh, is talking with another veteran who's going to be discussing uh, sort of his experiences post-military uh, and how mental health and wellness has really um, been integral in that part. Uh, so today's guest is uh, Air Force veteran Raul Juarez, and uh, and he's going to be talking about you know his transition and what he's doing now to maybe use his education to to give back to veterans. So Raul, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. You were an Air Force guy. I was an Army guy, but I was enlisted, so sir doesn't really fit much anymore. <laughs> but uh, that's more about me and more about you. So uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity to uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Yes, well, uh, from uh, from New Jersey, uh, currently I'm 39 years old. I'm married, three kids. I'm living in Texas. I was a former Intel intelligence analyst for just under 10 years. I went in from November 2000 to 2010, uh, June 2010. And uh, since then, I've been uh, focusing a lot of my higher education goals. And currently, uh, I work at a rehab facility. I'm a teacher, an elementary teacher, but in within that facility, we have uh, active, the majority of active duty veterans are also being uh, seeking treatment. So, uh, my background is psychology, so it's kind of, it's been a perfect fit uh, so far. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's great. I think that uh, it's always interesting to talk to veterans whose careers or their time in the military spanned between post nine eleven and pre nine eleven. You know, so you were in uh, in two thousand, and of course, or yeah, in two thousand, and of course, nine eleven happened. Uh, you know, roughly a year later, however long it was. 
Um, was there a difference for you from when you first came in to uh, the 9-11 changed everything? I would say so. I mean, being like, like I said, 10 months in, it was a, as, a, as a newly uh, intelligence analyst or trying to learn, uh, everything changed on a dime because a lot of it was potentially and, you know, this could happen and, you know, this could have been may, may not likely happen. You know, and then all of a sudden we're, we're watching this. And, you know, for me being uh, from the tri-state area, it was, I mean, I know people probably said it before. And it's kind of cliche at this point, but it was really like watching a movie. Uh, um, I had, my, you know, my sister had worked at the World Trade Center. And, you know, I remember just going up there all the time. And, you know, I had friends. Unfortunately, I had lost that day. Um, my firefighter friends and things. So everything just became like trial by fire. Like the following year to the day. September 11, 2002, I was, I found myself deployed. And up until that point, they had talked about, you know, you may deploy, but not until you really learn the job or, you know, until you're E4, E5. And they tell you these things could happen. And then all of a sudden, you're right in the thick of things, uh, so to speak. And it was just like they say, just baptism by fire. You know, we're trying to learn everything. And uh, things are coming at me, it just seemed like from all angles, you know, especially being the intel, because like now, I really do have a uh, huge responsibility or, it's, you know, you knew that going in, but now it's kind of more surreal, if that makes sense. It's more tangible. And you're like, I have to make sure, my, you know, my my people are, are safe. And a lot of it's continued on the, the intelligence that I'm feeding them. So it's a lot of responsibilities for a you know, 22-year-old or you know, 18 or something, depending on some of the cases, but you know, to have. You know, that's, uh, that's right. It's, it's critical. You know, it's, it's become more critical because, um, this is something that we talked about definitely around that time is everything now is real world, right? Um, and a lot of people don't understand is, um, you know, the peacetime army, say mid to late nineties, of course, there was Somalia and, and I was deployed to Bosnia. Um, but, but a lot of it was training, right? Training for future things and, and training for things that, that may or may not happen. Uh, but even me, as, as I was already in E7 by the time uh, when 9-11 happened, um, and uh, I'm sorry, I was in E6 when 9-11 happened, but I was a senior individual. I, it was in, what, 10, 11 years um, when I was in the Army or so. And and then I was the one that was turning around from, you know, hey, maybe get ready for this thing to, you know, we actually have to do something. And and it's it's really... It always fascinates me to to talk to people who, again, were in before uh, and then transitioned because they really understand the differences just the 10 months can make in your case. Right. Like, I remember just, I mean, it may seem insignificant, you know, now because we're so used to it, but there is no, like, you know, there's, you know, alpha no more. Like, when you go through the gates or, you know, everything's at, you know, bravo or, you know, or above and. You know, before it was kind of like you would go through the gates and people just kind of wave you in. And, you know, now we're getting inspected and you have to be vigilant at all times. And, you know, even like to your point, like my when I was training, a lot of my instructors and stuff, same thing. They had never seen anything or experienced anything during their time. Obviously, they're no fault of their own. It's just the way that the time frame was wrapped Desert Storm, Desert Shield and kind of in between those, those three or four years or whatever it was, you know, a period. Um you know, they're talking about this could potentially this could potentially happen. We've never seen it, and we don't think it will. But you know, and and now it's like I was actually downrange before some of them had ever even had even gone deployed, ironically, and I was kind of back briefing them. <laughs> so it was kind of like a, a one eighty. If that makes sense. No, it it absolutely does, and I think that that kind of immediate mind shift. I mean, we had no choice but to. Um, change immediately within hours. Really, I was uh, I was in Germany. So interestingly enough, um, uh, I never watched it. It was all on the radio for me, and it was in the afternoon. So my memories are are, are kind of different about it. Uh, but yes, and then especially being overseas and, and the threat condition, um, we had to change our mindset whether we were ready or not. Um, and that makes me think of transition and leaving the military. Um, it, it can also change on a time and require us to do a, a complete 180. And, um, you know, we have to change whether we're ready or not. Uh, is that something you experienced? Uh, yes, very much so. Uh, you know, for, for nine years or like so even when, I, even when uh, 
I talked to a lot of veterans. They'll say, I just, I would, I just served two years or four years. I'm like, don't say just, don't diminish it because two years is a long time. And depending how those two years went, it could seem like 20 years. Um, so having that structure for me, you know, there's like a chaotic structure, if that makes sense. You know, it's just kind of like, cause you're here, you're here one minute and then you might have to deploy within a matter of days or sometimes 24 hours, depending on, you know, your MOS or AFSC. Uh, so for me, just doing something for, at that point, it had been almost 33 years, you know, 30% of my life. It's all I knew, you know, really my adulthood was really kind of spent, kind of shaped there in the military and the service. So I was at that halfway point where everyone says kind of like, if you go over 10 at this point, you might as well try to ride it out to 20 or 20 plus or, and I had to really make a big decision. So when I, when I got out, I've struggled immensely. I, I didn't know, like just having that, that comfort zone, even though it was kind of for civilians that they, they can't understand it in a lot of ways for us, you know, we understand the, we, we know for the most part, like, okay, this could happen tomorrow, but we know what we're going to do ideally, our, our, our daily responsibilities. Uh, you know, I, you know I, I got out, I, you know, I didn't have a bachelor at the time. I didn't have a job lined up. Uh, so it was, I, was, I remember actually having to go on unemployment. It was just very scary. You know, it was a, but a different type of fear. It's that, that unknown that we have, maybe we all experience, but I think for veterans, it's even more common in a lot of ways. That's a great point. I think about the the fear, if or even anxiety, or however you want to term it, of somebody that's getting ready to deploy. It's um, I'm not certain what's going to happen, but I know what to do when it does, or or I generally know what to do when it does. Uh, when we get out of the military, we don't know what's going to happen, and we have no clue. We don't have the skills. We think, or or in many times, we really don't have the skills. Um, to to be able to manage that, as you said, you didn't have a bachelor's degree. Engaging in in higher education, um, you know, is is baffling. As a father who's helping two teenagers do it right now, it's baffling to them. Um, but it's even more baffling to someone that you know maybe that's not you know a, your family background and things like that. Uh, so, how long after you got out did you get into you know going to school and using your GI Bill and things like that? So I tried it. I think it took me about a good, I don't know, it seemed like a lot, but uh, like, I ended up finishing about six months later. That's only because a lot of my uh, credits that I earned, I was going to school periodically. I started actually school, going to school back in 97, and I didn't finish my bachelor's in 2010. But a lot of it was because I was able to get a lot of my military credits transferred, and the, the school where I ended up graduating from, Park University, was very generous. And they were very accepting of a lot of the credits and the training. They actually saw the value in it, which a lot of schools don't, don't see. Um, so I was able to kind of finish uh, a little sooner. But, I mean, if, if you want to call it 13 years soon. Uh, but um, I, even with that, I was still so like, hey, but well, what do I do? <laughs> you know, I was an intelligence analyst. And, yes, I was, I was trying to work in more in the government field. But I also wanted to – it was really weird looking back on it now uh, – nine years, almost nine years later, part of me wanted to dissociate myself completely as, as a military, but like, I want to try it out, strike it out on my own. And I, I kind of wrestled with myself. It's kind of like a mental tug of war because I'm like, but it's such a big part of who I am and I'm proud of what I've done in, in my nine and a half years or nine years, eight months, whatever it was, you know, uh, but I also want to be like, have my own identity. I don't, I don't know if that really makes sense, but that's kind of what I was going with. Yeah, it is. Um, it is something that makes a lot of sense because I hear it from a lot of veterans. I mean, there's some veterans will get out uh, and and want to keep that identity, want to want to continue to carry it around. Um, a, a colleague of mine, Tim Weineke, he's been on the show before, but he he talks about um, when he was in higher education as a veteran liaison. You know, when when veterans were first coming in um, to, to college, right. You know, they've got the beard, they're, you know, wearing the, you know, the cargo pants and the, you know, uh, tactical stuff. I mean, it, you know, stuff they just pulled out of the, the duffel bag. And usually it's like a year, year and some change when they start to, you know, change and adapt and, and maybe, you know, uh, make quote unquote this transition. But then there's veterans like you who are like, you know, no, I, I want to, 
not I don't want to deny what I did, you know, deny my military service, but but it's almost as if, you know, I keep trying to put it in the trunk of the car, but somehow it keeps getting in the back seat and, and cropping itself up every once in a while. So there is that sort of imbalance. Um, and again, it's it's trying to understand how veterans or how we deal with that when our veteranness comes up, maybe even when we don't want it to. Right. And I think to, to, there's two things. I think for me, when I when I uh, got out, I was living in San Angelo, Texas, which is extremely, it's a small town, well, it's small, but you know, not 90 plus thousand, but it's very, like, it's, it's heartbeat is the, the base there, the Goodfellow Air Force Base. So everything you go, everywhere you go is all you know, military, military, military. And for me, it was just kind of like, okay, awesome. And everyone I knew was all military. So I kind of wanted to like try something different. But like you said, to, uh, and I think I was fortunate having a, being a, you know, a career in intelligence where a lot of that the, the education piece was such a huge point of emphasis. Um, and even my last duty, duty assignment, I was an instructor. So I had a little leg up, I think, in the sense of, whereas, for example, uh, I talked to a lot of my buddies, you know, who are infantry or, you know, uh, they were services or admin. They didn't, they didn't have that leadership sometimes kind of pushing them, you know, where you needed to have a certain outside education to also help with promotion, at least in their experience. I don't know if things have changed now, but um, so I was fortunate to have that. I can't honestly say if I was an MP or if I was, you know, uh, security forces or whatever you want to call it, you know, um, I would have had that same kind of mindset to say, okay, I got to finish my education. You know what I mean? So I was, I was kind of fortunate in that regard. Yeah. And, and so you finished your bachelor's degree uh, and you didn't stop there, right? I mean, um, you and I had actually spoke uh, a little bit before this, and um, you went on to to some pretty interesting organizations and some pretty interesting opportunities to further your education. Um, many veterans, again, would just, okay, I got my bachelor's degree, now I'm going to shop it around the community and sort of, uh, you know, see what I can do with it. Um, what was it that caused you to go on to pursue advanced degrees? I think for me, Dwayne, honestly, there's a a lot of components, uh, to be very honest. Part of it was being a first-generation uh, Mexican-American here, you know, born. Uh, my parents uh, share a little personal history. They've never finished even uh, – my mom never finished, I think, past third grade. And uh, my dad, I, I, I don't think he finished eighth grade. Um, they came here, you know, early 20s. And uh, I think for me, that, that, that was the driving factor, seeing the pride that they had uh, when I finished. Because my two other brothers never finished high school, so I'm even a first-generation high school student, graduate. Um, and they just wanted me to motivate me and say, like, I think I can do this, you know. Uh, why not continue to try? I mean, why stop there? I, I've been blessed with these benefits. I've earned these benefits. Um, and I feel like I can have a bigger platform if I continue to learn about myself and, you know, obviously open up more doors with, with more education. It's just the way it is in a lot of ways. Um, so I, I just drove, went on to get my back from my master's uh, about a, a year, maybe about six months later, actually, I started uh, looking at pursuing a master's degree still through Park University. I ended up finishing about a year and a half later, two years uh, with a master's in adult education. And I, I said, well, having that in my back pocket, I said, well, let me see if I can be a, a teacher, an educator. Now that I kind of have the, you know, being a teacher in the military and instructor, I really wanted to see what the K through 12 sector was like. And so I started a uh, alternative teaching program for the state of Texas, which I'm actually currently going to finish in May. Uh, I, I started in 2014. I took some time off, a lot of time off, I guess. And uh, by the fifth year, I had to get it done uh, because I was lose all my search that I did on my tests. But in between that, um, kind of trying to wrap things up, at least this portion of it, uh, I still wanted to challenge myself even further. And I said, I've always wanted to go to the University, University of Miami for whatever reason. I just, I grew up, I guess, as a kid, liking their football teams and some of the mystique about them. So I, I applied there and got in through the sports administration program. And I'm happy to report that I'll be done, uh, God willing, in May with this as well. Uh, but, uh, also in 2017, I tried to go for a master, uh, actually a PhD at Harvard. I said, you know what? It's a long shot. I've never met anyone who, who went to Harvard. Uh, I think I can do it. <laughs> One of my actually professors, I went to Cornell. She said, uh, 
I'd ever even met. Just the ideal of having someone who went to an Ivy League institution. You have, we have this myth of these Ivy League institutions. I said, uh, how did you do that? How is that even possible? She said, you should apply. And I was like, no way. They're never going to take someone like me. Why should they? You know, I don't have, I'm a veteran. What can I, what can I offer, you know? And uh, I kind of sat on it for some years. And I said, you know what? In 2017, I, I think, uh, 2016, I, I'm sorry. I said, I, you know what? I'm going to apply. You know, what's the, I, I, feel, I feel like I deserve it. You know, I should. I should. You know, um, of course, the worst they could say no. And to my surprise, I still kind of think I thought it was a long shot and they accepted me. And so I graduated from Harvard uh, last year. Um, I had to take some time. I had to stop, stop the Miami program and, and go to Harvard. Uh, and it was a great year. It was a great experience. So I have my master's in human development and psychology. I unfortunately didn't get into the PhD program, but uh, it worked out well. And uh, now I'm actually in talks with some other PhD, a lot of different schools, uh, Vanderbilt, USC. Arizona State, a lot of um, Baylor, and a couple other schools have talked to me about doing their PhD program. So uh, I'm, I'm very happy and I'm very blessed. And it's been a, such a great thing for me because now I've used my education and my experiences and my opportunities that I've been blessed with uh, to help other veterans in higher ed. And that's one of my main goals and, and currently that I have to continue to recruit other veterans to these uh, prestigious schools that sometimes that we're we, we should be able to go to, but we sometimes self-eliminate like I did the first time around. That's entirely accurate. And, and I know that you and I had this discussion in, in a, uh, a, an organization that I'm uh, familiar with and, and, and wanted to connect you with is a service to school that, that very much does try to connect veterans to uh, Ivy League institutions, you know, Columbia and Harvard and Yale, uh, because like you said, it's who am I, right? You know, I I hear you, you you know, uh, first generation high school, I don't have legacy in no, you know, skull and bones or whatever that is, right? And and so it's, you know, maybe we have different legacy from our military status. And it's like in and so a lot of times veterans will, like I think you had said, you will self-select out of these things simply because we believe they're out of our reach and, and they're not. They're, they're not actually out of our reach. Um, and, and so that's one of the things that amazes me in post-military life is um, veterans will limit themselves more, um, whereas when you were in the military, you probably, you know, saw yourself, you could have been the you know, chief master sergeant, the air force or whatever it is, right. You know, when you're in the military, the, the options seem limitless, but once we get out, we seem to limit ourselves more than we necessarily should. That's absolutely true. Um, I just don't think, I think we sometimes, yeah, to your, to your point, we devalue our experience and we'll say like, well, how's that going to translate? And, you know, cause a lot of times, you know, when we do, you know, our evaluations and we sometimes will say, I was responsible for $12 million budget or, you know, and we're like, oh, but are you really, you know, sometimes it becomes kind of wordsmithing and then we're like, no, but we are, <laughs> you know, uh, it may not be exactly, you know, of course, you dress it, but anything you dress up in a lot of ways, it could be your resume, whether it be your, you know, your experience, you know, we, we dress it up anyway. It's just a matter of finding those, those tools and those strategies to, apply or transfer what we did what we did whether you were a you know a load master or you know infantry or you know you could like i said you could be 20 years old and you're leading a troop but uh, you know and foreign enemy territory where like the average 20 year old is not doing that you know so i think we we lose sight of that and we say oh it's just part of the job or you know i did it because you know my brother's sister depended on me but we're like but we're still we still have a great we're a great assets, and I think I, I think I said it to you in our conversation. I think we're like the ultimate force multiplier, and we say that not with arrogantly, but that's just the reality. <laughs> right, and you know, and that's the thing is helping veterans, and I, in in my way, of course, is helping veterans become aware um, that they have greater capacity than what they're doing. Um, and I get the sense that, that that's what you're doing too. As you said, using your educational experiences, even your personal experiences, um, in these 10 years since you've been out, um, to help other veterans. Um, again, and you and I have talked and you're involved in quite a few of the, uh, we'll call them current era veteran service organizations, uh, Team Rubicon, the mission continues. Um, and, and you're trying to bring all of these things together, the higher education, um, you know, you've worked with uh, 
um, you know, social justice and, and advocacy and things like that. Um, you're trying to bring all these things together and then show veterans that, look, there are other things out there than just sitting in the basement drinking beer. Right, absolutely. Um, it's, it's actually funny you bring that up because so I am part of the, uh, I was fortunately and I'm very happy I was selected to lead, you know, to be a part of uh, Mission Continues first uh, ever leadership senior, the leadership cohort. Uh, and what we were having the conversation actually about how can we bridge the gap or what's happening with the new BSOs uh, as opposed to like with the DAV, uh, BB and the uh, BFW, how can we kind of, are they going to just be like that type? You know, how can we get to get them to work together? Because one of the issues I've seen and I experienced myself is there's so many great, wonderful organizations out there. Nobody knows about them. <laughs> you know, we only know about them if you're fortunate to say, hey, have you heard of Mission Continues? No, what is that? Well, let me check it out. Oh, okay, I'll check it out. You know, um, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Or, you know, have you heard of, you know, RWB or whatever, you know, you, I'm so used to using these acronyms. But uh, we don't know about them. And so we have so many assets, you know, depending on where you're at. Obviously, there's more like here in San Antonio, a.k.a. Military City USA. Uh, there's a lot more, right? There's a big veteran presence. Uh, but... Um, so I'm fortunate in that regard. Again, I always come out to like fortunate and blessed. I like saying these words because that's how I feel, uh, especially with the mission continues for me. Uh, these past five years that I've been associated with them has really changed my life in a lot of ways. And I'm very thankful for them. And I don't know, maybe you can kind of hear it in my voice. Uh, but it really kind of gave me a purpose, even regard of all the stuff I was doing. I was still so lost and uh, every day is a struggle. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm, I'm okay, but, uh, it helped me just kind of get one thing I missed the most is having that like camaraderie. And that's what I have with the mission continues uh, and other ones like it, but I'm, you know, the mission continues near, near, dear to my heart. You're exactly on point. I, I, I appreciate. And, and as you said, is how do you bridge the gap? And, and, and this is one thing that I've, um, uh, that I've kind of come up with and, and correct me if I'm wrong. And, and definitely I'd like to hear it from your point of view um, is that, um, the, let's say the legacy VSOs, if we want to call that the big six, like you said, the VFW, the Legion and, and DAV, um, they exist. Um, it, the veteran supports their organization. I, I am not taking anything away from the legislative advocacy, uh, that the Legion and the VFW and everyone does. I, I think it's great. And so I'm not saying they only, um, you know, use the veteran, so to speak. Um, but they're, they're focused on getting as many veterans and speaking for as many veterans and providing voice as many veterans to, to influence external things. Whereas the new veteran service organizations, like you said, team red, white, and blue. And, um, but even organizations like service to school and, uh, the Travis Mannion foundation, um, they're designed to provide the veteran what they want, meaning, if right. I want to, if I want to go work with kids, then I'll go do the Travis Mannion Foundation. If I want to go chop down trees, then I'm going to go to, you know, Team Rubicon. And, and each of these does much, much more than this. But this idea of rather than being a place for veterans to come to and, and sort of, you know, uh, be part of this larger faceless group, they're much smaller, so to speak, but they're more in tune with giving the veteran what they particularly want rather than what the VSO thinks they need. Does that sound accurate? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, at least in my, my experience, again, I, I feel like there's a uh, more transparency there. Um, and like you said, you know, I can be, I can have an impact, a communal impact. And I think that's what speaks to me when it comes to, you know, all these, you know, the, the, the main ones, the new main ones, I guess you want to say, um, there's an impact there. There's a, uh, I can actually, if I want, like you said, if I want to talk about social justice and, you know, talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is something that's really big to me, um, and opening more doors for uh, minorities, you know, or even better minorities, whether it be, you know, uh, I can I can have that platform. And that's something that I don't think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of, you know, the, the people before us had. You know, um, so it was kind of like more of a, from what I've seen, and just again, this is just my experience, 
Um, and, and I love the more, those organizations, but it's more like, hey, we're going to be here. This is our club. You know, I serve. You didn't. Uh, it's a place where we can have a drink and watch the game, and, and which is great, you know. But uh, I, I think it was a more of a one-dimensional outlook on, 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 on the impact that veteran could have on uh, not only us as a, as a whole, but on, on the community and our society in general. Yeah, that's uh, in 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 some ways, and and I'll have to bring on. I've got some very very good friends who are involved in the Legion here in Colorado and even nationally, and I'll, I'll have them come on. Maybe there will be a a point counterpoint. Um, but but it you know it it does exist. You know if you know to be in the the VFW, you have to have been a veteran of the foreign wars, right? To be in DAV, um, you have to have been, um, you know. A, disabled veteran you know and so in and maybe there's some some different there's auxiliaries i know in the vfw uh, but this idea of it being inward facing rather than outward facing and and that's exactly right as you say with mission continues and i uh, i have the um uh, the pleasure and the honor of knowing uh, mary beth bruggeman and and she and i have talked about it before about really it's as much about um the veterans supporting the community and getting out and, and, and impacting. And of course, that's exactly what Team Rubicon is about and how they're interlaced and overlaid with Red Cross, um, you know, zones and, um, and Travis Mannion and working with, you know, developing character and children. But, but that's interesting and it is a much more outward facing, um, type of, of, of interaction for the veterans. And, and that, in many ways, is bridging the gap between the veterans and those who have never served. Right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, uh, but that, that's one thing that would be great if we can have that, you know, because, you know, again, not like, like as you to your point, not to diminish anything that uh, the big six have done or, you know, because they have so much experience, so much intel. They've paved the way, you know, in a lot of, in many fact, in many many ways to make these organizations, the new organizations possible. I mean, I honestly believe. So if we could somehow kind of do more collaboration, that'll be even more special because we'd be that much stronger, you know, and we could have an impact on in many different facets and in more of a one dimensional way. Just that, that that's, I think that uh, where we should head, you know, if, if possible, <laughs> Um, because we're going to lose a lot of experience and a lot of just, and a, you know, a lot of history too, I think, you know, it's sad. You're entirely accurate. As, as maybe longtime listeners will know that uh, we lost my father uh, going on two years ago now, and he was a Vietnam veteran. He's interred here at Fort Logan Cemetery at uh, the National Cemetery in Denver here. And uh, when I go to, to visit and I, I I do go every time uh, that I get up to Denver. Um, but when I go to visit and I look around and, and he's surrounded by Vietnam veterans, um, you know, that generation is, is passing away. Maybe the leading edge is passing away. Um, there's not a Vietnam veteran younger than 65 right now. And, and if we don't support, you know, all veterans in, in, you know, across the spectrum and be adaptable, and and you had mentioned something earlier in this, I think is, is a good time to bring this in, is the idea of diversity and inclusion. Um, and, and your focus on diversity and inclusion, I had the um, the, the pleasure and the honor, really, of, of um, going out to Chicago a couple years ago for an organization called Diversity MBA, um, which is focusing on um, diversity and inclusion and DNI officers and things like that. But they invited me out because there is an overlooked aspect of diversity and inclusion. As you said, the veteran minority, you know, and of course, within the, the military, we have various different, uh, um, you know, ethnic and, uh, um, ethnic minorities. But even that culture that we have as veterans, um, there are some protections against ethnic and racial minorities in the workplace. But sometimes veterans can be discriminated against in the workplace and not really seen as part of diversity and inclusion. That, that's true. That's absolutely true. And I think um, I think to our earlier point, part of that also plays into it. Maybe we realize it or not um, when we say, like, I don't really want to be associated as a veteran or, you know, what I mean, I want to kind of leave that part of me behind, you know, because we don't want to 
uh, sometimes we feel like, oh, we're just going to get this because we're a veteran or, you know what I mean? Or, or we're just going to, um, they might discriminate me, for example, if there's some political, <laughs> some views or, you know, whereas like now they're going to kind of lump us, you know, everyone in and say, well, I don't agree with this. So I'm not, I'm going to kind of hold it against you. That makes sense. Right. No, I mean, I, I absolutely, in, in, of course, people will jump to particular conclusions. Um, people will, will automatically assume certain things about us just because we're veterans. Um, just like, and, and perhaps maybe even quicker than they will assume certain things. If you're a young, young African-American male that grew up on the South side of Chicago, right? It, you, you wouldn't say certain things to that young man or young woman that's coming out of, um, you know, lower socioeconomic status. But people will, will frequently say things um, or judge things or judge veterans uh, in a certain way, um, not understanding that in many ways, I mean, we are a cultural minority, um, not, not even just a numerical minority. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there, there definitely is something to that, for sure. Uh, I mean, and that, there's, you know, that's the reason why. I remember when I was like, when I apply or when I do stuff, I, 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 they say, I'm very proud of my service. And I always make sure when I'm applying or when I talk about it, I mention it because it's such a big part of my life. Uh, and, uh, and it always will be. <laughs> it's part of my identity. <laughs> right. And, you know, and it, and it sounds like it's, it is part of your identity, but it's not your entire identity. And this is something that I see in the veterans that I work with in the clinical space. Um, is struggling into, you know, to talk about, you know, okay. what is this identity? What is my identity? And where do I fit in this new place that I don't know anything? Um, and, and that's what you're doing now is you're, um, you're, you're working at a rehab facility, a rehabilitation facility. Uh, you had mentioned, um, and, and you're actually trying to help veterans understand, um, what their identity is. Yes. And I just, I mean, and, the majority of the, of the people that are there, I think almost all of them are all active duty. So, and they're all in different spaces. Some of them have served 20 years, some of them four years, and some of them are getting medically, you know, so they're all kind of, you know, in that spectrum. But, uh, I talked to you, you know, each one of them will tell me like, I don't know what's going to happen next. You know, I'm, you know, and I tell them like, I think we had talked about this earlier that veterans and athletes share similar in, in this regards, similar characteristics, uh, because there's, they're like, what now is that unknown like we had talked about earlier and they and they suffer a lot they struggle a lot because now from you know from captain williams now it's going to be you know just rick <laughs> or you know what i mean or you know and, and again people say thank you for your service and it's great and, but nobody understands that as as well as we do and even sometimes amongst each other we don't understand it you know because everyone is different everyone processes differently so i try to let them know there's you know we still have our ideally our whole lives ahead of us hopefully you know so that's what I try to get them to know, and, and uh, I try to put them in contact with a lot of organizations that have helped me or that I've learned about or that others that I've spoken to have learned about to uh, to ho hopefully, you know, help them in any, in any way possible and just kind of be that support that a lot of us don't have. Uh, you know, I, I certainly wish I would have had in some capacity, but again, I'm, I'm lucky I found it, uh, even if it takes some time. Right, and, and you were doing the searching, and, and even as you said that, is is talking about helping other veterans find organizations. Uh, but as you and I um, talked previously, I knew of organizations that you had never heard of and things that were really aligned in what you were doing, like service to school and what um, Christine Schwartz is doing there, or merging vets and players. Um, your, your, um, your next master's degree, which is you know, <laughs> always interesting to say, but, uh, but, is, but it's in sports, fitness, and, and things like that. And, and what you just said about um, the, the differences or the similarities really between professional athletes and veterans moving from one, um, uh, from one place to another. Um, we actually have uh, Jacob Toops, who's the CEO of Merging Vets and Players, coming in on an upcoming show. But I'd be interested to hear in your experience what that, what those similarities are, um, in in how how perhaps professional athletes and veterans leaving one culture and emerging it to another can support each other. I think just from the just from the day to day, on, honestly. Uh, like, you know, when 
for athletes, professional athletes, even collegiate athletes, <laughs> there's a structure there. Same thing, you know, the, whether it be working out, whether it be, you know, studying the, the playbook or, you know, reading defenses or whatever they do, the meeting rooms and stuff like there's this similar in a lot of ways how we, you know, we're, we have PT and we do this. Yes. Air Force still has PT, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, just after just also that when you're an athlete, you know, I remember just playing, you know, for example, high school, it's like you, you're there all together the whole time to get, you know, as a, as a team, as a, you have to work together as a team. And now we're kind of individually, you know, so uh, we don't have that camaraderie. We don't have our unit no more. We don't have that platoon anymore. So w- w- what's next? And so I just having this conversation, I think we'd be, you should find a lot of similarities. Just like, for example, when I said that, you know, before you were Captain Williams and you were, you know, leading this particular unit, now you're Rick. And same thing before you were, collegiate wide receiver you know whether it be a junior college or you know, a really big institution you know big 10 school or whatever and you're you know people are applauding for you and depending on and now you're okay you're maybe you come up on shows every now and then or you're signing autographs but it's just not the same right you don't get that same rush like i miss for example that like i it's it sounds strange but i actually you know when i after my first deployment i enjoyed it i feel like i what i was doing i was applying it and i was like actually making a difference you know not that you can't make a difference from you know home station but it felt like it was exciting it was scary it was it was everything all all wrapped up into one um and maybe like you know you can't replicate playing on sundays or whatever sport you do <laughs> you can't play you know from the watching it's commentating you just can't right that's what they say it's not the same it's great but it's just not the same and same thing here like now we're talking about the, all those swapping stories and and so there's a lot of that. I think a lot of similarities, to be honest. And and there's a lot of struggles too, right? You Absolutely. know, is is what is that? You know, what is my new place in the world? Um, my guest back in episode 100, um, Christopher Lockhead, and this is something once he said it, it it's really struck with me. Um, he was talking about how. Um, for, for some people, there's a place for them in this world. You know, there's a, maybe there's a rule shaped hole, a Dwayne shaped hole, you know, if I'm going to be a doctor or something like that, but then there's other people who they have to make their own place in the world. And his point was, he was one of the people that just had to create his own space, but for veterans. And I think also for professional athletes, or even, you know, as you said, collegiate athletes, um, they're no longer allowed to be what their role and their place in the world was like. You know, they loved being on the field. We love being in the military and we're no longer allowed to either because we left, you know, against our will, you know, voluntarily, but our place in the world was in the military. Now we have to find a different, make a different place in the world. Uh, Even like the uniform, how symbolic that is. You know, obviously I, I didn't retire. You know, I can't wear it and go to a show up at a function or, you know what I mean? Like same thing for the athletes, you know, when they, when they retire, you don't see them wearing their old uniforms and, you know, and the, the impact and the, sim- the symbolism and how important, how special that was. And it's almost like a second skin. You know, I, yeah, that's, it's a great point about, you know, not feeling connected, not, not being able to feel um, uh, sort of the same thing. This has really been great. I, I really appreciate you taking the time out on, uh, on a weekend as we're recording this. Um, if, if people are interested in hearing more about what you're doing, maybe they want to, you know, kind of reach out if they're in, um, Austin or Texas and how can they get a hold of you? Uh, I can, uh, leave my email. It's just, uh, R-A-U-L dot J-U-A-R-E-Z one nine seven nine at gmail.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn just under Raul Juarez. Uh, and, uh, would love to hear back. Uh, you know, like I said, I'd love to collaborate. If there's any people that are doing similar work or any veterans, you know, or civilians doing similar work, uh, how can I learn? Because I'm always really eager to learn and just anything I can absorb would be great, you know, but I would love to collaborate uh, because I'm still in the process of, you know, of trying to start up all these, these visions and these, yeah, these endeavors that I have. So I'm just... I would love to learn more. Any any feedback I can get, positive, constructive, I always take it. You know, for a guy with uh, two master's degrees and, and working on his third and a bachelor's degree and everything, um, saying that you like to learn is a little bit of an understatement, I think. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I mean, I think uh, I, I just try to use all the, like I said, one thing I would always tell my, you know, my students when I was an instructor, I would say, try to use your benefit. It doesn't have to be college. I mean, it doesn't have to be university. You know, real estate and HVAC tech or, you know, mechanic or, you know, just try to learn something to keep. And also, for me, it, it honestly, maybe I didn't, I hope I kind of relate that message. It also helped me kind of continue getting out of those dark spaces when I was, it kept me busy, it kept me focused, it kept me driven because a lot of my downtime, when I get in those moments of like those lulls, I start thinking back of all the, you know, the, the, the struggles and, and the hurt and the, you know, the pain. And so for me, it, you know, sometimes even now, like I'm getting that kind of visceral, physical reaction, you know, because I start thinking about stuff. Um, and so for me, it kind of kept me going and saying, okay, I have this to do, this to do, this to do, this to, this to, you know, if that makes sense. And it just kind of kept me going. And I think before I knew it, I was like, oh, okay, this is happening, you know, and this is great. It's uh, something that I didn't really even think about doing. It just kind of stars aligned in that regard. But um, that's one of the reasons kind of kept me also going. For me, that was my thing. Some people like to do something that for me was just like education and how can I continue to help not myself but others and open up more doors for them and, and be a positive role model and influence and impact society for the good. Yeah, that's outstanding. Being able to um, continue to serve after the military, that's how many of us um, want to be able to do, and, and it sounds like um, you've you've been able to do that. So thanks for coming on the show today, Rule. Uh, thank you, Dwayne. It, it's been a pleasure. Uh, uh, what can I say? I'm, I'm, I'm very honored <laughs> to be doing this. Uh, thank you so much. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. One thing I appreciated about Raul's story was that he demonstrates that we don't have to be affiliated or employed by a huge national veterans organization to make a difference. While he was a Mission Continues fellow and most closely associates himself with the Mission Continues, he simply does what he can, where he can, while both maintaining his own well-being and taking care of his brothers and sisters. Another point that I'd like to bring out is how he almost self-selected out of attending Harvard. Now, maybe college ain't your thing, and maybe that you think that the degree that you got from the college down the street is as good as any paper you'd get from Harvard. And you'd be right, because a degree is a degree. But on another level, it is Harvard. These universities, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, seem to be so out of reach to many veterans that they aim their sights too low and don't give it a shot. Don't sell yourself short, vets. Your capacity to achieve amazing things in your post-military career may only be limited by your imagination. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash HST108. While you're there, consider leaving an honest rating or review. It helps other people find us. We're always looking for guests. You can drop me a line at info at VeteranMentalHealth.com to recommend guests, or you can go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash guest to fill out a suggestion or request. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I'm a therapist, I'm not your therapist. If something you heard makes you think that you should reach out and talk to somebody, then do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us next time for another great episode. Hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice so you don't miss it. Until then, remember veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability
you guys. Take those bottles out, dog, and pour them in the sink. Take the needles out your arm and the gun away from your forehead. It's time, man. You've been through enough pain. Stand up. It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man. Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up, you know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.